welcome to episode 152 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I am here with Lydia Creech, Ashley Baker, and John McCamus. And in today's episode, we will be talking about movies we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be joined by special guest Jeffrey Couchman to talk about 1955's The Night of the Hunter. Uh, as part of our Young Critics Watch Old Movie series, uh, Jeff wrote the book The Night of, uh, the Night of the Hunter, a biography of a film. And he kind of just, we, we, we have a you know great chat, uh, very much like last week where we dig into that film uh, a lot, which as a big fan of that i was super i think it's a it's a great conversation so definitely check that out later in the episode um but let's go ahead and get started with some movies that we saw this week uh john i know you and ashley watched something that has a little bit of a connection to night of the hunter so you know a little cross promotion that's true that's true ashley you wanna you yeah um we watched do the right thing it's a uh spike lee masterpiece Mm -hmm. um i think we can call it it's um, just one of my favorite films of all time, I think, and I never really get tired of watching this movie. It's about um, just this neighborhood in Brooklyn on one of the, a, a few really hot days of the year, um, and a lot of pizza delivery and racial tension and other stuff going down. And um, there's a, a lot of political and social issues in this film that are sadly still relevant, um, even though this film came out, I believe, in 89. Yeah. Um, but uh, it does have relevance to Night of the Hunter because it's Spike Lee loves Night of the Hunter, and he makes a direct reference to um, the right-hand, left-hand uh, kind of thing um, with Preacher. Uh, with one of the main characters, uh, Radio Rahim, who um, instead of having love-hate tattoos on his fingers, has um, love-hate brass knuckles, and kind of does his own version of the um, right-hand, left-hand uh, kind of soliloquy. what would you call it? Soliloquy yeah. kind of story. Yeah. And the cast is really, really Just great. Just fantastic. Samuel L. Jackson, Martin Lawrence, Spike Lee. Uh, um, man, it's it's still yeah. just a great masterpiece of American cinema, even today. And the, the political relevance. He's, he's, what's that, Zach? Yeah. Well, you've said you've watched it a bunch of times. Um, any, I mean, did anything strike you this most recent time? You know, it, it, it did something, you know, I don't know, did something stand out differently than you had, you know, noticed in previous viewings and i want to ask how you interpret the ending because it's pretty um not controversial but like well, there's kind of depending on where your stance is on what uh what's spike lee's character's name mookie mookie yeah when he throws the trash can yeah well there's kind of you've kind of got two endings well you've kind of got a lot of endings at the towards the end of this film you've yeah, yeah. You've got kind of the big climax of the film where um, Spike Lee's character, Mookie, um, well, there's this big kind of brawl in Sal's famous pizzeria um, between Radio Rahim and Sal and Bugganow, and um, uh, they're just going at it, and it goes out onto the street. The cops show up, 
um, a lot of things happen, and um, the police end up um, killing Radio Rahim. And so, I mean, the spoiler. Yeah, that's a big spoiler. Spoiler alert. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, that came out in nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so the the neighborhood is just in an uproar against Sal's pizzeria. The the Sal and his two sons who who run this pizzeria. And everyone's kind of at this standstill of, well, do we just tackle these guys or do we, you know, talk it out? Do we let them go? Like, what's going to happen? There's this huge moment of tension. And Mookie, who has kind of been this great but unwilling kind of moderator throughout the whole film, picks up a garbage can and throws it through the window and that just unleashes all hell on Sal's Pizzeria and um, and then um, you get after the credits roll two very potent quotes from one from Martin Luther King condemning violence and one from Malcolm X saying I'm not condoning violence but when it's necessary, it's necessary, basically. Yeah, because throughout the film, really, everyone is just talking up until the point Radio Rahim is is taken down by the police. It's just talk. They're like, let's talk it out. You know, let's try and, and be civil about it and talk. But then when the first act of violence is committed, then the rest of the film turns incredibly violent and brutal. and And it really is... Uh, a really intelligent uh, approach to what what is violence and actually how how effective is it mm-hmm. and it you know there's really no other film like it mm-hmm. and it's still I mean again Lydia you asked the right question like how how do you interpret that ending because mm-hmm. a lot of people have different different interpretations and and I kind of look at it as yes Mookie kind of did like commit a v- van I don't know, like, the the tense of the term, but, like, he committed an act of vandalism against the building, you know, which turned into they destroyed the building, but Sal and his sons were escorted to the side. Yeah. And they were allowed to just watch, which is not great for them. It's horrible. I mean, that's their livelihood, but, I mean... Maybe he saved Sal's Maybe life. he saved their lives. So... You know, earlier in the film when Mayor takes Mookie to the side and says, Hey, I got I got something to say to you. Always do the right thing. And Mookie's like, I got it, I'm gone. <laughs> and that's like one of my favorite moments in the film. And obviously like it's the title of the film, Do the Right Thing. And so like, you know, it's a really kind of debatable thing that Mookie does, but I think, you know, it's it's what he felt was the right thing at the time yeah cool um well i don't think i'm not sure if do the right thing is streaming anywhere but i i I'm, you know it's one of those that is probably easy easily accessible at a, a local library or something like that um and i i encourage if you haven't seen do the right thing you should definitely check it out it's always uh, timely it's, i think <laughs> it is um lydia you had a movie you wanted to talk about uh, yes, I finished this movie right before <laughs> I hopped on to do the podcast, and I don't really know what possessed me to rewatch it. Andrew put it on his watch list, and that movie is 1995's Babe, 
Mm-hmm. Written by George Miller and directed by Chris Noonan, uh, George Miller of Mad Max fame. <laughs> and this is just a kids movie about a pig who wants to, who thinks he's a sheepdog. It, it's because pigs are actually very intelligent. Actually, it makes sense because I just watched uh, Akja, and that's about a pig that's super intelligent and doesn't want to die. And you love it because it's cute. <laughs> you love Babe because Babe is cute and super intelligent and tries really hard and is a good pig. He's a, he's a good pig. He, yeah. <laughs> um... I don't know. I just remember that as a kid, it would make me really sad and I didn't like this movie. And I don't know why. I think maybe because this movie does not really play around with the fact that Babe might die or like life on a farm for farm animals. A lot of them have like they're for eating and they're not pets (laughs) or cute. And that's kind of like a constant in the background for Babe because it opens in like a pig factory I mean it's not as like prison campy as Okja Okja but that's still kind of a dark place to open your children's movie well, I know, I know that uh, the next picture show is is doing Babe and Okja yes! right now for their for their their episode this week. Um, Ooh, timely. I mean, what what what? I mean, outside of the, the you know the opening of the Pig Factory, do you see do you see any other comparisons between these two movies? I don't know. I, I don't. I remember watching Babe when I was younger, also, but I don't remember anything specific about it. Does it kind of have that? Um, does it deal with anything you know with with capitalism in the same way that Okja does? It, I don't know about capitalism, but there's this sheepdog character named Rex who's real upset that Babe's going to come steal his job. But he gets kind of, he starts out not as like a real antagonist, but he's very firm. Like this is, I'm a sheepdog. I herd sheeps, roosters crow in the morning and that's their job. And like, this is your set path in life and you cannot change it because of who or what you were born as. <laughs> And, like, he changes his mind because Babe shows him that he can be the best sheep pig. He gets 100s at the sheep pig competition. Spoilers. Uh, but, I don't know, like, this real essentialism sort of thing. That's Obviously, he's wrong, but it's kind of a really uncomfortable... I mean, I guess that's, like, an animal farm thing idea anyway. Just to... There can be like racism, I guess, or something like that. Prejudice beliefs. There could be racist. There could be some racist animals. We don't know. Speciest, <laughs> speciest. So I mean, you're challenging those sort of ideas. I don't know. It's a lot. You. It's not. There's no violence or anything, and it's cute, and it's got animatronics by Jim Henson. He does some of that. So yeah. So I guess any time the animals are talking, like their mouths are moving, that's animatronics and not terrible animation because it's from 95. 
So it looks pretty good, too, I guess, if you're not freaked out by animals talking, which can be a little bit weird. Just their mouths move. I don't know. So, yeah. Babe. I'm going to watch Babe, Pig in the City after this because that one is directed by Mad Max, George Miller. <laughs> I don't well, know I'm, what I'm I sure meant for. I'm sure you'll you'll enjoy the, uh, you know, where where Babe joins like a, a biker gang type thing. Isn't and that goes, one like pretty anti-capitalist? Is that what going, the reappraisal I'm sure thing? it is. I, just, I, I, <laughs> George Miller kind of has a bent with that. So I'm sure it will be a lot. That's I'll be curious maybe next episode. We'll have to hear how Babe Pig in the City is compared to uh, Babe to Okja. <laughs> I'll report back. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, well, thank you. Is Babe streaming anywhere or is it? did you just rent it? I got it from the local library. I don't know... I think you can probably get it on rented on iTunes or something. Oh, it says. I want to say it was on. I want to say it was on Amazon Prime at some point. Uh, Letterbox is saying it's on Netflix. So oh, okay. There you go. There you go. Yes, it is. You can watch it on Netflix tonight. <laughs> Check out Babe on Netflix. You can yeah. You can you can watch Babe while while Lydia's watching Babe Pig in the City. Uh. Cool. Um, so we have a little bit of time left. I was going to talk about a new release real quickly. That's Spider-Man Homecoming, the latest uh, Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe movie and in the third reboot of Spider-Man since 2000. Uh, this, this this one it was written by Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly, uh, and it's directed by John Watts, who came on the scene a couple years ago with the indie film Cop Car. Uh, and this in this iteration of Spider-Man is played by Tom Holland, who is pretty much the most um, giddy, excited human being on the planet right now. He's I, regardless, I feel like of how you feel about the movie or anything, you should. I, I really enjoy his uh, his like the interviews that he's done, and he he was talking recently where he doesn't know anything about the next Avengers movie that he's in because he keeps like spoiling secrets for Marvel, and they're mad at him, so they won't let him they won't let him read anything about Avengers because they're afraid that he'll spoil everything. And I find that kind of charming, you know. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, 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 that. Like that, they have this like you know, twenty year old who's just like like so pumped to be Spider Man that they can't tell him anything because he's spoiling it all. Uh, but yeah, outside of Holland, this movie also has Michael Keaton who plays the villain, uh, Marissa Tomei as Aunt May, um, John Favreau and Robert Downey Jr. Repli- reprise their roles. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. of course is Iron Man. Uh, it also has Zendaya, Donald Glover, Laura Harrier, uh, Tony Revolori of Grand Budapest Hotel fame. Uh, Hannibal Burris shows up briefly for some reason. Um, very eclectic cast. It's a, a, the, I, I really enjoyed the the high school uh, the high school kids. All, all the all the selections they had for that casting. Um, but this one t- takes uh, picks up Spider Man or Peter slash Peter Parker when he is a you know in high school as a sophomore. Um, he is it, it's it's it literally picks up right after the events of Captain America: Civil War, where he shows up for the big kind of halfway battle and where all these all these superheroes fight each other. Um, Spider Man's among them, and, and it kind of picks up there where he is um, <laughs> where he's videotaping his excitement about being invited to this whole thing. Um, and so, so really, where the movie the movie's plot picks up is him. 
uh, kind of a little bit, you know, waiting waiting for the next step. He, you know, he's got his taste of the of the big of the big leagues and superheroing, and he kind of wants to, uh, you know, to continue that. And instead, he's he's stuck doing, you know, being the friendly neighborhood Spider Man and helping old ladies across the street and you know stopping people from robbing, you know, stealing cars. And uh, there's a there's a kind of a entertaining montage where he's doing these little these little errands. And at one point, this guy looks like he's breaking into a car, and Spider Man like stops him, and he's like, "What are you doing, man? This is my." car and he's like i'm so sorry and then all the neighbors stick their heads out and start yelling at spider-man he's like i'm so sorry guys and it's a whole it's a whole thing it's a little bit but uh but he's also you know dealing with the with the with the travails of high school he he uh you know it's it, it kind of weaves in this this much smaller t- uh, story about um peter parker and in trying to um you know survive high school and and you know talk to girls and be into Cathlon and go to parties and stuff like that. Uh, while a giant me- mechanical bird thing played by Michael Keaton attacks people. You know, like like everybody's high school. Right? Did you guys have that? Okay. Anyway. I'm not getting much I'm not getting much help on the on the on the, from the audience. My right high school sucks. Uh, so. Yeah, so I, I haven't seen this movie. <laughs> So I, I, I'm, I'll admit going in, I'm pretty biased with Spider-Man. I love Spider-Man. He's, he's easily my favorite superhero. If you did, if you do your research and find pictures of young Zach, you'll find him in, in, in Spider-Man pajamas and in Spider-Man costumes. I think I wore a Spider-Man costume for like six, seven straight years where that was just what I was every Halloween. So oh. I love Spider-Man. I could I could sing the the 1960s theme song if I if we really wanted. Yeah. Really wanted, really Let's, wanted do it. To. Let's do it. Let's do it. Threatening um, to sing on the podcast. <laughs> uh, maybe at the end. Okay. <laughs> but anyways, so I love so I love so I think going in I, I was a little biased. I, of course, I was going to find some enjoyment out of this, but I really I wasn't a big fan of the last two Spider-Man movies starring Andrew Garfield, directed in that were directed by Mark Webb. Those were just kind of not great movies. I, I mean, I, I, there's nothing really else you could say. They're just bad movies. Um, but I love the the Tobey Maguire. The three Tobey Maguire movies are, are are good. Spider-Man Two is probably one of the greatest superhero movies that we've ever had. It's a fantastic movie. Um, but I was th- this one was very interesting. I, I think that it has it's 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 a very entertaining movie. It's pretty light for the most part. It's very funny. Um, I think it's a it's a really enjoyable experience. It, it kind of has that that good natured friendly that we've that we saw a little earlier this year with uh with uh, wonder woman where it's 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 a much more positive uh superhero you know movie experience rather than something dour and dark like uh, like you know the recent superman and batman movies um and that's kind of what you want from a spider-man movie i think that this is a character that you 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 want it to be light and, and goofy that's just kind of his personality um and and tom holland is really just perfectly suited for this role he's very charming he's very uh he's very charismatic he he brings some of that that awe and wonder that he has outside of spider-man to this spider-man role where uh, you know he, he's doing stuff and he's like getting excited or, or just like shocked by like what's happening around him he's he's constantly in awe of, of really just the experience of being spider-man and there's something a little a little charming to that um but one of the the one of the things that i kind of took away from this one that's that, that's different than any marvel movie is that it really had a a very interesting villain that, um with michael keaton's character 
uh, a lot of the Marvel movies recently have just kind of had these these figures that uh, that just appear and are there, and they kind of have villain on a T-shirt that they wear the entire time, and that's about it. We don't really there's nothing really that engaging or interesting about them. But this one, they kind of set him up. They 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 pick up the movie. When the movie starts, he he is uh, helping. He's he's working with a crew and is helping to clean up the mess that was left after the Avengers battle in the movie The Avengers, where they had you know all of these aliens that have attacked New York City, and he's you know very excited. He's he's got this big this big new gig, and he's going to make a lot of money. It's going to help his family. But but then this uh, this kind of shadowy government organization comes in and says, "Hey, no more private contractors on this. We're going to be taking this over." And of course, he he you know he takes that. He, he doesn't really appreciate that that intervention, and so he ends up you know taking some of the the technology that they had recovered already and creating this vulture persona where he goes out and uh, steals this this equipment that this government organization is, is carrying and takes it back to his people and they create these uh, you know specialized weapons that they sell off uh, for a lot of money to different people um, and I think that the what what separates this villain from what we've seen in, in recent Marvel or just really comic book movies in general is that he there, there's there's I think that there's a, a lot of weight to his character he you understand his motivations um, and it's a it's an interesting direction to go for a for a villain character in 2017 to have um, this 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 character who he you know I kind of I kind of always relate that battle sequence in 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 the Avengers to kind of this reimagining of 9/11 where we, there's this you know New York City is under attack but in the Avengers version we're you know we're able to overcome that and save it and save the day and it's it's all okay and afterwards it's you, the, you know I think it's interesting that we have this character who's directly influenced by that where in this we're in the pre 9/11 world he had a, a steady job he didn't have to worry about anything he he was able to provide for his family but now in this in this quote post 9/11 post of you know New York City battle world he is stuck kind of having to reinvent himself um, I think that that's a kind of a, a kind of politically um, charged no, not charged, but kind of a, a semi-political statement for for this character to have in 2017 with with you know kind of the political climate that we have, where a lot of the people who voted for the current president, I, I think that there's this sector of them that were just frustrated with you know losing with just kind of this technological revolution and losing out on um on their jobs and, and what they what they knew as as a career up to this point and now it's just it's not a thing anymore um and i think that michael keaton's character really just embodies that and instead kind of becomes this instead of just waiting for somebody to to give them give him back what he what his livelihood was before he instead um again reinvents himself and of course it's it's you know it's you know crazed you know 
pontificated because it's a superhero movie and he becomes a supervillain. But I really, I really kind of, I really liked that commentary that they kind of had in because even though he was doing all this stuff and he was the adversary to to the Spider-Man character, I could, un, I felt like his his villain was so successful because I could kind of empathize and understand why he would be doing this. It wasn't just this shadowy figure that comes and has powers and wants to beat up the superhero. It, it there was a clear a clear narrative to where to what he was looking to accomplish you know there's a clear line for what he was trying to accomplish um i thought that was interesting especially in a marvel movie that they have you know this this character that kind of has these different layers to him uh but overall i think spider-man homecoming is is it's fun it's a solid movie i think if you're looking for a blockbuster to entertain you it, it'll do the job and uh i really i think that uh I will, I'll also mention that I think that it also has one of the best scores for Marvel movies. I've ripped on those for many years now, but Michael Giacchino's score for this was superb. It had a personality. It had an inflection. It, it had the 1960s Spider-Man theme infused into the theme song, which is always a winner. So, uh, yeah, if you, if that if that's something that interests you, I would check out Spider-Man Homecoming. I apologize for, di- for d- divulging into a long string of... Uh, it became very political for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, I guess so. Um, all right. Well, I guess uh, that'll wrap up uh, this this part of the podcast. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back talking to Jeffrey Couchman about Night of the Hunter after this. Hello, Cinematary listeners. This is Andrew Swafford with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we do not want your money, and we don't want to place ads in the show at this time. That's not why we do this. We do it because we enjoy each other's company and because we want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema. However, there are a few things you can do to help out the show that we would greatly appreciate. Firstly, leave us a review on iTunes, preferably a positive one, uh, because the algorithm gods tell us that reviews increase our podcast exposure. Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send an email to cinematary at yahoo.com so that we can hear from you guys for a change. Maybe you think I'm an idiot for not liking Singing in the Rain, or maybe you have a suggestion of a movie that you really want to hear our opinion on. Regardless, let us know your thoughts, and we'll read them out and respond to them on future episodes of Cinematary. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions we bring to you guys every week. So to recap, uh, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, and share with your friends and family. We would truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. Leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. What a joy divine Leaning on the everlasting arms What a blessedness What a peace is mine 
Leaning on the everlasting love. And we are back with episode, or part two of episode 152 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1955's The Night of the Hunter. Uh, joining us today is a very special guest, Mr. Jeffrey Couchman, who wrote the book The Night of the Hunter, a biography of a film. And he also worked with our guest uh, from last week, Charles Malin, on the collection of AG, James A.G. works. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us for this. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is really nice of you. It's great to be here with all of you. I can't wait. This is going to be fun. Yeah, definitely. So I guess, uh, you know, usually on, on these parts of the episode, I, I do a quick introduction of the movie and, and set the set the scene before we start talking. But I figured since you are here and you wrote the biography of a film, you may be better suited for that role. All right. Uh, let me set it up a little bit with a few thoughts and then we can get into uh, questions and conversation. Sure. Uh, the Night of the Hunter, as you said, was released in 1955. But the story is set in West Virginia during the 1930s. It stars Robert Mitchum as a psychopathic, self-proclaimed preacher who murders a widow and chases her children down the Ohio River to get the $10,000 he knows they have on him. By the way, what I just said is not a spoiler. Uh, We learn the minute we meet Mitchum that he murders widows for their savings. And we soon see that Shelley Winters, as Willa Harper, is widowed. And when Preacher shows up in town in Woozer... We know what's going to happen. It's, there's, there's a sense, the sense of tragic doom that hangs over Willa is, in fact, essential to the film. It's a very important part of it. There's no suspense there. What happens to Willa is a foregone conclusion. The suspense and the fear come from what will happen to the children as they go down the river and treat preachers after them. Eventually, the story pits the wicked preacher against a strong but saintly farm woman named Rachel Cooper, who's played by the strong but saintly Lillian Gish. Uh, the film is directed by Charles Lawton, who was an internationally acclaimed actor, famous as Captain Bly and Mutiny on the Bounty or Quasimodo and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, he had directed stage plays, including just before Night of the Hunter, the Kane Mutiny Court Martial, whom Herman Wook's uh, adaptation of his novel. And he did do a few scenes in a 1949 film called The Man on the Eiffel Tower. Uh, things didn't work out so well with the original director, Irving Allen, so Lawton directed a few of those scenes. But Hunter was his first complete film. And sadly, it was his last. Uh, the film did not do well at the box office, so this was the beginning and the end of Charles Lawton's film directing career. Uh, the screenplay was written by James Agee, uh, though Lawton eventually had a big hand in it. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, Agee had been a noted film critic for Time Magazine and, and The Nation, and he'd written several scripts by this time, including uh, collaborating with John Huston on The African Queen, a wonderful movie with Bogart and Hepburn. Um, the script was based on a book by a first-time West Virginia novelist named Davis Grubb. Uh, it had been published in 1953 and was instantly a bestseller. Uh, Grubb actually drew on a true story of a serial killer named Harry Powers, who was hanged for the murder of two children and two widows who'd placed ads in Lonely Hearts columns. Uh, by the way, Jane, Jane Ann Phillips just uh, published a book called Quiet Dell, which is also about Harry Powers, the whole the whole saga here. Um, Grubb, Grubb named his character Harry Powell. I love that change, Powell. <laughs> um, anyhow, before Grubb's book was even published, the producer Paul Gregory saw the work in galleys. Grubb's agent had shown it to him, and, and Gregory bought the rights so that Lawton could direct the film. Gregory and Lawton had already teamed up for very successful stage shows, uh, which I hope we can get back to in our conversation, because they really do have a bearing on The Night of the Hunter. But for now, I can just say that Gregory felt Lawton should turn to film directing. Lawton agreed, and they dived into Night of the Hunter. So that's probably enough summary and background, and uh, we can dig into some details now, I guess. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, so I guess before we get like into the film, let's let's talk a little bit about Lawton. Uh, like you mentioned, he was a very accomplished actor. People pretty much knew him from that before he started directing uh, and did Night of the Hunter. And it seemed like, uh, judging from the book, uh, that you that you said that he kind of had a, a hands-on approach with the crew. It seemed like he was, you know, working a lot with with everybody involved because you know he, this was his first time directing a film and he seemed to want to you know take everything in. And one of the people he was working a lot with was the book's author. Davis Grubb on creating kind of the look of the of the film. So, what, what do you kind of make of Lawton and his process with with creating this movie? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Lawton was first of all very much in control. Everybody, I interviewed several people involved in the production, and um, uh, they talked about how much control he had, and he, he knew what he wanted. But he was also very open to listening to everybody. He was uh, really very democratic. It's a fascinating combination of the authoritarian who wants something and wants it done his way, but also will listen and see what you have to say. And all right, we can adjust that. We can fool with that. A very democratic process with with all the different people. And Hilliard Brown, the art director, and Stanley Cortez, the cinematographer, have both said that they felt on Night of the Hunter they were able to be more creative than they'd ever been in their careers. Lawton just was a wonderful guy to work with, and he and Cortez in particular talked about how simpatico they were. But the first person Lawton was simpatico with was Davis Grubb. Um, Lawton loved writers who put stuff in. He said, I like the putter inners. You know, he was a big fan of Thomas Wolfe and he liked big novels and lyrical writing. And Davis Grubb is a putter inner. He's very lyrical. He loves words. Night of the Hunter is beautifully written. It's a thriller, but it's very lyrical. And uh, Lawton immediately responded to this writing and he called up Grubb, who was working as a copywriter in Philadelphia. And the first thing he said was, my God, man, who are your masters? <laughs> so they, he went up to Philly text to meet with Grubb in person, and they spent several days just talking about the book and getting to know one another and, and, and really feeling one another out. And they had a very good, close relationship. Grubb eventually wrote a, a long, six-page, single-spaced letter detailing a lot of thoughts about the film, how things should look, how things should be played out, how, how the music should be. I mean, very, very, very involved. Um, and especially he was involved in the look of the film because Grubb, who had the skills as an artist, he'd gone to the Carnegie Institute of Technology for a year, so he could, he could write. He drew uh, pictures for Lawton. So in the Margaret Herrick Library in Beverly Hills, you can go there and see about 120 drawings that Davis Grubb did for the picture. Uh, there's there's a layout of the town, Cresap's Landing, there's pictures of what the kitchen should be like, there's pictures of a preacher outside by the gas lamp, uh, he has individual pictures of the characters, stunning stuff, and many of the pictures are pretty much storyboards for the film. Hillier Brown's town that he helped to design and um, out at the Rowland V. Lee Ranch in San Fernando Valley. His town looks very much like the town that Davis Grubb sketched. And the kitchen looks a lot like what Grubb sketched. Uh, so it's uh, he was deeply involved in the look and the feel of the film. Um, something that's noticeable at the film, which I'm sure we'll get into, is the, uh, the, the dichotomy of the thing. It's very pastoral, very realistic in some places, but extremely unrealistic, stylized and expressionistic in other places. And nobody has ever figured out where this expressionistic ideas, these ideas came from. We know that Lawton was looking at D.W. Griffith films with James Agee in New York. He was very interested in capturing the, the clear pastoral quality of D.W. Griffith. But what led him to these strange expressionistic uh, techniques like, like looking at the burlesque dancer through a matted keyhole. Um, the, the, the murder scene occurs. There, there's an A-frame that makes the bedroom look like a church. I mean, where these expressionistic ideas came from are not quite clear, but I have a theory that it came from Davis Grubb's drawings. In my book, I reproduce a couple of the uh, drawings that are a little more expressionistic. He has one of a stripper 
in a burlesque club that looks very much like the German expressionist artist George Gross. And uh, he has a picture of how Harry Powell imagining the women he's killed. And one woman has just one eye and these disembodied faces over his head. It's very disturbing. So it's quite possible, in my mind, that Lawton looked at these non-realistic pictures and it somehow triggered something in him. Um, of course, if he was already thinking of silent films, he would have uh, latched on to uh, German expressionist silent films and maybe felt that sort of German expressionist technique was just right for this particular subject matter. But I, I have a feeling, because he was so intent on the drawings and he, he ate the drawings so well in his in his film, that the expressionist ideas that uh, Grove was playing with somehow triggered uh, non-realistic ideas in, in Lawton's uh, presentation. Yeah, because I, I agree that the, the aesthetic of the film is just so it, it has a lot of stuff that you can recognize and seems very realistic. But then you have those kind of dreamlike, surreal qualities to it, you know, namely yes. when they're on the river uh, and, and, and just kind of that whole sequence from them getting away from Preacher to them meeting up with Miss Cooper. Uh, you know, yeah. I guess go more in the detail with kind of Griffith and the German expressionist films, because, yeah, it seemed like he drew a lot from that and just how he he framed and created the ambiance of the whole thing. Yes. Well, he was very interested. In, in, in going back to the silent era. He felt people were much more involved with films uh, when they were silent. He said they leaned forward and were involved. Now they sit back and eat popcorn. You know, he just felt he wanted to capture the power and the essence of visual storytelling. So he was very intent on, on Griffith. Griffith really hangs over the whole, the whole movie. I mean, Griffith has a pastoral quality. It's very realistic, but it's also infused with a kind of poetry, you might say. There's this lyrical quality to his cinematographer, cinematography. And he want, Lawton wanted his uh, second unit director, Terry Sanders, to go out to West Virginia. Most of the stuff was shot in a studio, but he had Terry Sanders go out to West Virginia, and he wrote specifically in his notes to Terry Sanders, capture clarity. I want to see everything. I want it nice and light and bright. He really wanted that Griffith clear quality in the West Virginia landscape, which Terry Sanders did beautifully. All those early shots, you know, the helicopter shots, seeing the river and the town, that's all Terry Sanders stuff out there on location. And when Preacher is going down the road in his Model T car, the rear projection, all those scenes in the background, those clear, beautiful shots of cemeteries and houses and roads, that's all Terry Sanders' location work in West Virginia. And the picnic scene, uh, when they all go out missing and bringing in the she's and uh, he, he's sort of wooing Willa there in the, in the, uh, in the beautiful picnic setting, uh, that's very much in, in the vein of, of the pastoral D.W. Griffith poetically infused imagery. <laughs> so, so he's quite intent on, on D.W. Griffith. He also did some, some technical things, though. He noticed that Griffith constantly returned to the master shot. He would come back to the master shot. And, and Lawton loved to do that within this film. There's one great example uh, when Willa goes to the house and hears that Preacher is actually a villainous. He says to a little Pearl, tell me where the money is or I'll tear your arm off, you little wretch. You know, um, She hears this. And in the script, both the first draft that A.G. wrote and the, the shooting script, it has a close-up of Willa hearing this and discovering that Preacher is villainous. Lawton doesn't do that for the film. He cuts to the same long shot that he opened the sequence with. So we see Willa all alone outside uh, this house looking very frail and vulnerable. And so he returns to the master shot for incredibly emotional effect. You know? It's just great. Um, so that specific detail of, of Griffith he was interested in. Um, he was also interested in um, capturing silent film technique by using as few shots as possible. It's really uh, when when uh, Preacher is going after the kids and John is trying to get Pearl into the boat. In the script, there's a lot of inserts. He wants to see the hands on the ropes and the hands pulling at the oars. And Lawton shot those scenes. He shot a lot of those inserts, those close-ups. They're in the outtakes. You can see them, which are on the Criterion DVD. 
but he didn't use them. He would keep all the action in medium shot, like a silent film. We see John struggling to get the pearl into the boat, and it would cut to medium shots of Preacher coming at him. So he would cut from medium shot to medium shot, back and forth, very much in a silent vein, using as few shots as possible to tell the story. I guess my favorite shot in that vein is uh, when Ben Harper is taken away, arrested for, for the murder of a bank guard, and Willa runs into the shot. And there's little Pearl and John. She scoops up Pearl. John looks up at her, and he's already been told by uh, by his father, never tell where the money is, never tell. So John leaves the women and walks away from them. All one shot. Willa comes into the shot, picks up the kid. John looks and walks away. We get all this emotional tension between mother and, and son, with the mother's anguish of what's happening with, uh, with Ben being taken away, but it's all just in one single shot. So a silent film technique was very much on his mind. Um, but the expressionistic stuff is very much in the vein of German expressionist films. I've, I've mentioned that, uh, that phrase. You know, the, the seminal film is Dr. Cab- uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920, right? Where the uh, You've seen that, right, probably? Yeah, yeah, with the uh, artificial sets and, and uh, very, very obviously artificial sets and painted backdrops. Um, and when, when they're going down the river in Night of the Hunter and we see a barn on the, on the land, it's really just a painted backdrop, it looks like. There's no dimension to it at all, very much in the vein of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Uh, and Hillier Brown says it was quite intentional. We intended to make that a non-realistic barn. The whole river sequence, uh, Lawton said, he wanted it to be like a dream for the kids. So as you said, that's an incredibly surrealistic uh, section where we sort of go down the rabbit hole, you know, <laughs> into this imagery of the night sky and the giant animals in the foreground and the skiff drifting along in the background. Um, and he, uh, you know, German expressionist also used, expressionism uses angular shadows to, let's say, create a nightclub into a, and may turn into a very threatening space, like in Dr. Mabuse the Gambler. And the angular shadows and the dark and the lights, uh, chiaroscuro effects that we see in Night of the Hunter go back to German expressionism. So this clash of styles, the realism of Griffith, the angular, dark, brooding shadows of German expressionism makes for a very unusual film, really, really distinctive uh, in its style, which bombed at the time, but is quite fascinating to people now, I think. Is the style, oh, sorry. I was just wondering if the style, uh, later questions talk about how the film flopped and just didn't catch on with the audience. You think maybe this blend of like silent cinema techniques and German expression is just too weird for audiences at the time. Cause I'm looking at other 1955 films that are really popular, you know, stuff like the seven year itch and rebel without a cause. Um, so also like color films were getting bigger. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. It was, that's a good way to put it. It was just too weird for audiences at the time and probably seemed a little old. We're sort of fascinated now by this this use of cinema, of silent cinema. At the time, it maybe just seemed like, God, we're going back to that. Didn't we do that already? We're, that's old, you know? <laughs> it probably looked old. And yes, you're right. Big color spectacles were around. And the, the, as far as religion is concerned, this is like big Ben-Hur, Ten Commandments, Salome, you know? <laughs> these were huge films that put religion on screen as spectacle and very reverential. This is a black and white, very dark film that shows the dark side of religion. I mean, you get the saintly character, Lillian Gish plays the good saintly Christian, but my God, Preacher, of course, is this man who's driven by God to kill people. And then Icy Spoon and all the wonderful townspeople who are very reverential and singing, bringing in the sheaves, have this veneer of Christianity. When he betrays them, my God, she's leading a lynch mob after this guy. You know, he... (laughs) through the mud, let's get him. It's like tear off the lid of this Christianity and you see horror, you know, they're as bad as, as preachers. So it's a film that really sort of looks at the darker underpinnings of religion. And that probably was not too appealing to people in 1955. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's true. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the script because, uh, you know, we talked a lot about James A.G. last week and he wrote the first draft of this. And I, in, in the book, you mentioned that people there was like this rumor that it was like 400 pages long and it was just unusable and it was just crazy. Um, and then Lawton, it, it seemed like ended up rewriting, you know, pretty much all of it to make the shooting script. So, you know, what can you tell us about uh, A.G.'s original script and what did he take from the novel? And, you know, what was he kind of going for with that first draft? Sure, absolutely. Um, that what you said, though, I should point out is is sort of the myth that Lawton completely rewrote it. It's um, that's that's still a little controversial. I don't think it's quite as extreme as people have made it out to be. The myth about the the uh, script is that Ag came on and and veered away from the novel, put in newsreel footage, but all this stuff that he was interested in in the Depression and wrote a, a script that was some people said three fifty, others said four hundred. Mitchum said as big as a telephone book, this monstrous thing that was completely unusable. And then the legend is that it got thrown out and in some reports ag was kicked off the project and sent back home but sent back to new york and ag uh, lawton sat down and rewrote the thing from scratch and just completely re- redid the script um that's not true um ag stayed on for the revision period there are documents that show him getting paid for the revision period for five weeks there are contracts he was paid a thousand dollars a week for revisions and he was there all five weeks during the revision period. <laughs> the contract says that Lawton and uh, Paul Gregory, the producer, could have paid him off for 2500 bucks and just done, done got someone else for less or done it on their own, but they kept him on. So they paid him $1,000 a week, an additional $5,000. And there's a memo, um, one memo only, unfortunately, but there's a memo from Charles Lawton to uh, AG suggesting a difference in shots in when, when Rachel Cooper is... Uh, reading the Pharaoh story in the Bible, he says, why don't we do these shots? Because A.G. had sort of extended it and had a fairly long sequence. And the student script is exactly like the layout of shots that Lawton has laid out in that memo. So he had a big hand. Clearly, there were other memos like that, I'm sure. They just got lost. And uh, But but they he was working with A.G., giving him directions, but no doubt also suggesting to A.G. this should be shorter, that should be shorter. And it's a it's a complete myth to think that, that A.G. couldn't edit a script. He had already written before Dr. Hunter in 1951. He wrote um, uh, five short films for television. For the omnibus television show, he wrote five episodes in the life of Abraham Lincoln. And he wrote some of those scripts fairly long. It was supposed to be half hour episodes. And he wrote a very long one for the first draft, for instance. But then within a few weeks, he cut it down to a very tight, manageable size. So he could edit very quickly and, and condense very, very well. He'd also written a wonderful short film called The Bride Comes to the Yellow Sky. And that was filmed in, 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 a, in a production called Face to Face. Um, and that's a terrific economical lean script. So he was capable of cutting and condensing. So uh, it wasn't as if Lawton was completely stranded without a writer. Although um, uh, what what Ag did, he didn't stray from the novel. That's another myth, um, because the script was actually discovered in 2003. Paul Sprecher, the trustee of the James Ag Trust, discovered the script in a letterbox in another box of books that had come from Ag's house on King Street in New York, and he discovered the first draft of Night of the Hunter. Um, it has been published, as a matter of fact. I just it came out in February. The the brand new uh, book. It's called The African Queen and the Night of the Hunter: First and Final Screenplays. I edited it, and it's uh, part of the Works of James Agee series by the University of Tennessee Press. This is volume four. Uh, Charles Malin's volume of criticism is, is soon to come out as well. Um, but this volume four contains, for the very first time, the published script of The Night of the Hunter first draft. And it also has the shooting script. So you can compare the two. You can see them side by side. It has extensive annotations. 
Uh, the shooting script was published before. It was in um, AG on Film in 1960 with several other scripts and republished in the Library of America. But this volume that has now come out has some very interesting things in it in the shooting script that were never printed before. Um, in the, the moment when, when Preacher is calling to the children after Willa is murdered, he says, children, if you remember that in the film, they actually have musical notes so that we can see the, the octave jump, children. They write a staff out and put notes on the page. And later he does the same thing. When he's blocked behind the door, children. So the musical notes are on the page, and they're published there for the first time. And there's some other niceties within the script that are published for the first time. So anyone interested in Night of the Hunts will want to see that first draft that A.G. wrote. Uh, by the way, I should mention that the first person to ever tell me about the first draft was Preston Neal Jones, who has written a wonderful book um, called Heaven and Hell to Play With, the filming of the Night of the Hunter. It's uh, an oral history of the film. Uh, Preston interviewed practically everybody involved in the film, and then he stitched the interviews together with his own commentary. So it's a, it's a wonderful book. I would say our two books, The Biography of Film and Heaven and Hell to Play With, are really complimentary. If you have one, you should probably have the other. You know? <laughs> Anyhow, um, what, what the script shows, anyone who reads it now in this uh, University of Tennessee volume, will see that A.G. stuck very closely to the novel. In fact, it was a little too faithful to the novel. There are long speeches by uh, Ms. Cunningham, and A.G. includes all those speeches as a long monologue by Rachel Cooper, which works beautifully in the book. But A.G. just dumps the whole monologue into the end of the film. It goes on for pages, you know. And then he has a long speech for the defense lawyer. He just he just overdid the thing. He loved the book so much. He really was it was wrapped up in it. He said Davis Grubb has provided a wonderful film book here. And he said he thought Davis Grubb should get credit first. And he does. On the screen, you can see. Screen book by Davis Grubb, screenplay by James Agee. That was Agee's idea to put the novelist first. You know? So he was too devoted to the book. And uh, when Lawton saw this script at the end of June in 1954, and he had a start date of August 15 for production, he must have been appalled. He said, how am I going to cut this thing down? But uh, Lawton was a brilliant editor. And here we can get into those uh, stage plays I was, I was talking about, because Lawton had, um, he, he created a stage play of John Brown's body, Stephen Vincent Benet's epic poem. He created a brilliant show for three actors and a, and a big chorus that sang songs and created special effects. And the music in John Brown's body, by the way, was by Walter Schumann. <laughs> so they already worked together. But he created this brilliant condensation of John Brown's body, wonderful editing. And Herman Wouk, with his big play, K-Mutiny Court Martial, went on for four hours. Lawton came in to direct it, and over a weekend, according to Wouk, he cut out an hour and cut it down. And Wouk said, you're killing my play. And then he realized, oh, you're, you're making my play great. <laughs> and Wouk eventually... Um, when the play was published, he uh, has a uh, credit to Lawton saying, uh, dedicated to you in admiration and gratitude. So, so Lawton was an absolutely brilliant editor. He could cut down a play. He could condense an epic poem. He was ready to work on James Agee's very long, very big script. And, and basically, he did an editing job, I think. But, but it's, um, they, they work together. I, my, my feeling is that they really should get screen credit together. And that's what Agee felt. He wrote a letter at one point. To the, I don't think any screenwriter in history has done this. He wrote to the producer saying, I think Lawton and I should share credit. <laughs> he said, sometimes I think maybe Lawton should get solo credit, but I feel I was useful as a sounding board and a counter-irritant, so okay, I'll, I'll share credit. But Lawton and Gregory said, no, no, I don't want to do that. Gregory wrote back and said, you, you made a wonderful contribution to the film, and you should get solo credit. And Lawton didn't want to be seen as a credit hog or something. So AJ gets solo credit, but really, Lawton was deeply involved in the editing, but he certainly did not just take over the whole thing. They were still deeply involved together. And um, what AG had done was to dramatize a lot of important sequences in the film, and he created the structure. Uh, midway through the novel is where we learn where the money is hidden. We have a flashback, and that's where we discover where the money has been hidden. 
AG pulls it forward in, in chronological order, lets us see where the money is hidden. And uh, he also does a similar thing with the uh, discovery of Willa's corpse in the river. In the novel, Uncle Bertie tells, he's drunk and he's telling a picture of his wife, what he saw down in the river. Oh, Bess, if you've seen this horrible thing. And he describes what he saw in, in flashback, essentially. AG doesn't do that. He lets us discover the corpse at the bottom of the river um, so that we see Bertie himself discovering the corpse at the bottom of the river. So he rearranges the order of things in very important ways. And Lawton kept all of that restructuring and rearrangement in place. Um, so, and there's a lot of wonderful little details that Ag put in. One of the great moments in the film, I'm sure you love the moment where um, Mitchum's in the uh, burlesque house and he puts his hand in his pocket and he pushes the knife up through his coat pocket. <laughs> that's, that's Ag's bit. Although in the original script, he wanted it to come up through his trouser pocket, so it was a real <laughs> image, you know. Uh, a lot, I'm sure. Thought, well, Marine officers are never going to go with that. The the production code administration. So I'll have it come up through the coat. But that switchblade popping up was Lawton's idea. And um, those kids at the beginning of the film, all those disembodied faces of the kids, that's also Agee's idea, but he put it at the end of the script. He wanted to end with these images of kids' faces. Lawton took that and put it at the beginning. So there's a lot of stuff in the script that is still Agee, and, and um, uh, basic structure is, it remains Agee. Uh, I want to talk about Robert Mitchum in, in this lead role. What, what, what about him uh, was, was Lawton you know, taken by as, the, as this preacher character? I know in the book you mentioned that uh, Lawrence Olivier was kind of somebody thrown out there, but I think that you can't have this – you know, after watching this so many times, you can't have this role without Robert Mitchum. He just seems so you know, perfectly suited for that. So what did Lawton see? That is, that is so, so much the truth. Isn't it? I think today part of the reason it holds up so well is we just love Lawton. Uh, uh, Mitchum's performance. It's really compelling. Even people at the time were, were admired it. But um, Mitchum, I think he's, he's handsome, he's strong, and uh, Lawton once said to Mitchum uh, something like, people who sell God have to be sexy. <laughs> so I think he saw the sexiness of Mitchum was very important to him. That's probably also though why he's wanted somebody um, attractive like Laurence Olivier. And Preston Neil Jones talks about um, Gary Cooper as being uh, <laughs> something that they all thought about. I guess Grubb mentioned he was excited Gary Cooper doing it. And Paul Gregory told me that he was thinking maybe having Jack Lemmon play the part. <laughs> um, but right after Night of the Hunter, Gregory cast Jack Lemmon as the villain John Wilkes Booth in a show for Omnibus again, I think, um, the day or some other show, uh, the day uh, Lincoln was shot. And so he had this idea that Lemon, as this attractive guy, could play a villain very, very well. But all of these people, whether Cooper, Olivier, Lemon, or Mitchum, are very attractive on the outside. You know, they, 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 he wanted somebody smooth and and, uh, and 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 handsome, but he also wanted somebody who could be tough and strong. And Mitchum just filled the bill all the way around. You know, uh, the interesting thing about Mitchum's performance, though, is that it's a little bit heightened. I mean, considering what he usually does, you know, it's it's kind of, for Mitchum, it's really over the top, you know? <laughs> Mitchum is just incredibly low-key acting. Oh, AG has a great um, comment about about Mitchum in uh, Out of the Past, from 1947, he reviewed Out of the Past, and he, he said this about Mitchum. He said, Bob Mitchum is so very sleepily self-confident with the women that when he slopes into clinches, you expect him to snore in their faces. <laughs> a wonderful AG writing. So it's uh, yeah, typical of Mitchum to play things down. He's very low key, even when he's playing somebody vicious like Max Cady and Kate Beer. But here, he's really kind of over the top and theatrical and having the time of his life playing this part. My feeling is he may have been caught up in Lawton's performances. You know, Lawton was a kind of over-the-top actor. He loved to uh, not ham it up, but but play things large, give them big, 
Gregory once said, everybody who worked with Lawton got sort of pulled into his orbit, became shaped by Charles Lawton. So the one time in his career Mitchum puts on an overly theatrical performance is, is when he was working with Charles Lawton. I don't think that's just a coincidence, you know. I think he Lawton wanted something a little bigger and Mitchum was able to give it to him. Um, so it's, it's um, a, a wonderful, wonderful control. I say over the top, but still very, very controlled performance. The thing is, you know, the film is is really all about duality, right? It's good and evil, it's shadow and light. And the fascinating thing that in the acting, you see this duality. Mitchum is a bit theatrical over the top because Harry Powell himself is theatrical. He loves playing the, ro- the place, the, the, the role of, of the leader and the, the master minister, you know, that scene good and evil when he has his two hands on doing the arm wrestle in the Icy Spoon's place. You can see he's just loving putting a spell over these people and playing the part. And Mitchum is loving playing a man who's playing a part, you know? So you can see Mitchum's um, over-the-top theatricality kind of a code almost for preacher's deceitfulness, preacher's phoniness. Whereas Lillian Gish is playing in a very natural, straightforward way, pulling back and very low-key and understated. And her so low-key acting is kind of a code for the honesty and the straightforwardness of Rachel Cooper. So even in the acting techniques, you get a clash here in the characters and they say something about uh, the two different people that are being played, Harry Powell and Rachel Cooper. And Mitchum just does a brilliant job of, of controlling that and, and showing phoniness of preacher through his brilliant acting in this in this best roles ever. Yeah, I, I, one of the things I always think of with Mitchum in, in this role is you know you 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 hit it you, like he has that over the topness and he's and he's really is doing that for most of the movie and then when he runs into Miss Cooper and, and, and Lily Gish's character you know she she immediately sees through it and you know he he has he tries to redo that scene with the love and hate on on his on his fingers whenever he meets her it's very similar to the the, the scene with the icy spoon but she completely just shuts him down and I, and I think that that adds a little bit more to you can you can feel the defeat of preacher whenever he's up against Rachel Cooper because she she is shutting down all those theatrics she doesn't allow him the, the, the time to pontificate and, and be this you know giant character that he's been for so long in the movie yeah you're absolutely right she just cuts it off he, uh, and and this way it's shot is is completely different too the uh, we see uh, preacher, but he looms up in Icy Spoon's place. He stands up, you know, and you see this man sort of pow- overpowering this tiny little space, and you see their faces all just enwrapped. There's one shot where he has his hands grappling with each other, and John is in the background as if he's being overpowered by the hands, you know. So you really get a sense in that first scene of Preacher in control and as a powerful figure. But in the scene with Rachel Cooper that you're talking about, we get a low angle shot of, of Rachel Cooper. So she's the one who looms up. She's dominant. And then we look down on Preacher from a high angle position. So he's in a lower position. You know? So the, the camera lets us know that things have shifted. He's losing control of the story, in a sense. So he's losing control of, of, of power. And Rachel Cooper, um, the tough game that she is, sees right through it and cuts it off and won't let him go through that scene. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, well, Lillian Gish is just so you know. It, it's it's ironic that that uh, Lawton was watching so much of D.W. Griffith because, of course, Lillian Gish is so synonymous with that director. She was you know in The Birth of a Nation and Intolerance and many of, a, of his other films. Um, you know, and she has this this such this such kindred calm spirit to her. But then at the same time, she can get fired up immediately. You know, when she first meets John and Pearl, she's she's like you know get up kids get out let's go let's go let's go. But at the same time, she's so sweet. Um, did did Lawton see? kind of this quality in
dating Gish beforehand, or was this just type a kind of character that she really embodied on, on her own and was just able to create the role herself? Well, I think uh, you're absolutely right that uh, Lawton saw uh, something in Gish right from the start because um, all those qualities you just mentioned in, in Lillian Gish in Night of the Hunter, was all of that was part of her whole screen persona all the time she was working with Griffith. And yes, she was so associated with Griffith at one time he thought maybe he better pull away from her because everybody thought he was nothing without Lillian Gish, you know. But she could be incredibly tender and sweet and, and saintly in her films. I mean, in, in The Orphans of the Storm, she's this virginal woman and she's a, she's a naive country girl in Way Down East. But she also had a real toughness to her. In, in The Orphans of the Storm, she's, she's desperately trying to find her kidnapped sister, you know, and then, oh, you ever seen Victor Seastrom's film, The Wind? I mean, she's fighting off an attacker who's coming to rape her, you know, she shoots the guy, and then, and there's sand in that she has to battle. I mean, she's a tough dame, you know. Uh, I, Paul Gregory wrote her a letter, and he said, dear little iron butterfly, Lillian <laughs> Gishep, an iron butterfly, she was always that way, tough, but saintly, serene, but but determined, and uh, Lawton certainly saw that in her in all the Griffith films he watched, and so pulling her into the film was a way, indeed, of bringing Griffith uh, into his realm um, and, and using her as part of the Griffith connection, but it was uh, that, that, that complex character, complex persona of Lillian Gish that is what uh, Lawton wanted. Um, they talked about, Lawton actually mentioned himself, maybe Jane Darwell, you know, she was Ma Joe in The Grace of Wrath, um, a wonderful character actor, um, uh, very, very good in Bob Hope's The Lemon Drop Kid also. <laughs> um, he talked about Jane Darwell, and he, they, he mentioned Ethel Barrymore at one point, but said she's maybe more Hudson River Valley than Ohio River Valley. Um, so very different characters. They sort of were in passing and, and rejected fairly soon, and it was Lillian that he really settled on as the person to create uh, the rate saintly and tough Rachel Cooper. So I think they worked together on that. And he also, um, you know, talking about toning her down, though, he wanted to make sure she played in this. Her her whole screen persona, though, in the silent film, she didn't overact. She wasn't like Theta Barra. She didn't overdo things. She always played low key. In one scene in the outtakes, um, when she discovers that uh, um, she's got to go, she's got to get out of town because uh, Icy Spoon is after them. She has this wild eyed reaction. Where's Where's Ruby? She went. We got to find Ruby. Her eyes go wild. And in the outtakes, she says, not so wild, Lily, not so wild. And she does it instantly on the spot and plays it down. So he didn't want a heightened performance from her. He wanted it toned down. He wanted it calm and cool. And uh, Lawton, he wanted, I mean, Mitchum, he wanted a little bigger. So he's clearly working out this contrast. And he wanted Lillian Gish partly because she was so good at playing down, playing very straight and direct and, and, and without any phoniness and embellishments, you know? Yeah. Um, what what was the uh, kind of decision-making process with having her appear at the very beginning of the film? Because it, it shows her reading from the Bible and there's the kids' faces. Uh, and it, you don't really know who she is initially. Um, of course, you meet her later. But, you know, what what was the decision between Lot and, and, and A.G. And, and everybody to, to have her feature at the very beginning of the film? That's a good question. It's not exactly clear how that happened. Uh, that's not in the first draft script. It's not in the shooting script. Um, A.G., as I say, wanted this ending where children's faces appeared on the screen at the very finish of the film. That must have been an age in Lawton's mind. He began to think, well, maybe we should put kids' faces at the beginning of the film, and then maybe we should have her reading to them. At one point, he was actually, Lawton was thinking of starting the film himself. In the outtakes, you can see him doing the introduction. He's the one saying, we're going to have a little film here, and I'm going to read, read you from the Bible. And he, 
he's doing his um, you know he, he he went on tour across the country doing a show called an evening with Charles Lawton where he would read from the Bible and read from Shakespeare and, it, and he's very famous for doing this uh, and it, Paul Gregory had set him up on this 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 tour um, so at the beginning of the film we're really seeing the Charles Lawton of his reading tours in, in the outtakes anyhow we're seeing it when we, he's setting some place along the line he must have figured that's not going to work that's not good so he, he, where it happened how it happened I don't know but he at some point said let's have Lillian Gish start the film she's the one who should start uh, setting up the story with these quotations from the Bible. The quotations from the Bible were originally um, just superimposed in A.G.'s first draft. There were going to be images on the screen, words on the screen. That then in the shooting script became a voice, not Lillian Gish yet, just a voice speaking the lines from the Bible. You know, beware of uh, sheep, um, wolf in sheep's clothing and all that stuff. Uh, a voice was going to speak that. At some point, he decided better than to have a disembodied voice, it would be better to have Lillian Gish, the actual character, speaking these lines to children. So it sort of sets her up as the saintly character who is in control of the story, really. Um, but as you say, we don't know who she is. Although people at the time, especially in 1955, seeing Lillian Gish on the screen, they would have, you know, people who've grown up with her in the silent films would have said, ah, Lillian, you know, she's going to she's going to be a big part of this film it would have been exciting for them. You know, we don't necessarily so we're cinephiles uh, don't have that same reaction. It's, it's a very it's an unusual opening, but it sets up right away that that bizarre quality to the film. As you said, the surreal dreamlike quality of the film is set up immediately with that disembodied uh, image of her and the kids all around her. So I think that's something Lawton was after. Let's immediately establish that the film is not going to always be realistic. Be prepared for something a little different here, folks. Get ready. I think it's a really nice strategy for a film that kind of goes off into strange areas from time to time. You know, um, like one of the other players I wanted to talk about, you know, behind the scenes was Walter Schumann, who did the score. Um, it, it, you mentioned in the book that he that he and Lawton developed some of the some of the score and some of the songs for the film before even filming, so that whenever they were on set, you know, in, in production they could kind of hear what the idea of, of this scene would be like uh, you know what, what, what was the what was the thinking behind that what what did they hope to accomplish by having the the music beforehand yeah Lawton was was very interested in music um, as I say he'd worked with Walter Schumann on his adaptation of John Brown's body and Schumann had written some beautiful melodies things that will if you hear them make you think of, of stuff from Night of the Hunter in fact um, and a real sense of, of music and, and, and he knew right away that the music was going to be very important in this film he wanted a musical texture, so he did something very unusual. He brought the composer in even before the script was wrote, was written, and they started thinking about how the score would work out. And together, they they developed. Uh, Schumann has written an article about this. He explains the whole thing and talks about how unusual it was. Never like it happened like this before. He was able to work out um, a six-part musical structure for the film, you know, and, and and so he could think of each part of the film as a musical uh, um, uh, exhibit, really. You know. Um, whether whether A.G. and Lawton talked about that or not, I'm not sure. But A.G.'s first draft very much has six parts. You can you can see six parts in them. I sort of break it down in my book. I show the six parts of the script that are there, and they they are contained in the in the shooting script. Um, so it's it's fascinating that there's the the six sort of registers still. Um, but Schumann, in fact, uh, talked about certain sequences like the river sequence being. Um, edited with more footage than they needed so that it could be cut to his music. He was able to write, as he called it, a 12-minute tone poem for the river sequence, and then the film was cut to his music. That's unheard of. You know how it usually goes. A film is put together, and then they get a click track, or they dump in some music. The composer comes, and they say, okay, I want a cue here, I want a cue there, and the composer has to fit his his music to the frames of the film. You know, <laughs> Exactly the opposite. 
for Night of the Hunter. They cut parts of the film to Walter Schumann's music. So uh, Lawton just felt the music was going to, going to help to, to give a certain texture and, and, and emotion to the film, which it really does. And Schumann created um, this contrast of good and evil within the music. They say the film is all about the clash of good and evil, right? So he has a theme for Preacher. There's these eight blasting chords that are the evil preacher theme. And then he has a, a, lullaby, a lullaby, a couple of different lullabies that he uses, including a theme that Pearl sings on the river, the pretty fly. Once upon a time, there was a pretty fly. Well, I won't try to sing it for you. I'll blow it. But you know, the pretty <laughs> theme sort of noodles around in the early parts of the film. And then she sings it. And then it becomes a motif all the way through the film. It's, it has wonderfully grand symphonic uh, treatment when they're escaping from preacher on turbulent waters. So um, the, the film, uh, the music in the film with its repetitions and echoes and motifs really becomes something that knits the film up. Uh, it's, as I say, it's a film that goes from naturalism to expressionism, surrealistic is, is realistic, very strange, but it's tied together in various ways. And one way it's held together is through the music, that, that shaping of musical motifs to play and weave in and out of one another that really helps to make the film organic and, and create a whole. So uh, Schumann was instrumental in, in making this a very um, um, organic piece. Oh, he also um, was instrumental in uh, in the murder sequence. Actually, Stanley Cortez was putting the uh, murder sequence together. He was designing it, just thinking about it, and he was off in his own world, and Lawton walked up to him and said, what are you thinking about? And Cortez, in that way he had with Lawton, said, none of your goddamn business. I said, all right, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of a waltz here as I'm setting up the murder sh shots. I'm thinking of, of Sibelius's Valse Triste. And Lawton said, oh my God, a waltz. That's great, because Schumann had been talking about doing something very intense and dark for the murder sequence. He called Schumann the set. So Schumann and Cortez and Lawton could talk about the shaping of the murder sequence, and Schumann ended up writing a waltz for the murder. And that becomes Willa's theme. We first see it and hear it in the, in the honeymoon sequence when she's uh, seeing the knife in the uh, coat pocket and says, oh, man, you know, we hear the, the waltz theme then. Um, and, but then the waltz comes in during the murder sequence. And underneath it, though, he combines it with Preacher's theme, this underlying deadly sound underneath. So he, he made a very complex uh, score that he's got going there. But uh, it was Cortez and Schumann with Lawton working together to create um, a musical um, idea for the murder sequence that then became a motif. Oh, and that waltz uh, comes in later in the film when Ruby is outside uh, the prison wanting to, to see Mitchum and said, he loved me, he loved me. And then pulls her, pulls her away and says, we got to get home. You know, While she's standing there for just, I think, one bar, maybe four bars, you hear a little bit of the waltz theme. So the Willow's waltz theme, which is really a theme of death. You know, it's the theme of a girl gullible and, and comes under preacher's spell we hear that theme with ruby for just a few bits and then uh beats and then and then we go on so it's a brilliant echoing of of the waltz theme and then it comes in again when lillian gish is giving ruby the brooch at the end we now hear the waltz theme once again and i suppose by that time the idea is well now it's it truly is a theme of innocence and girlhood and and ruby is growing up and and lillian rachel cooper wants to help her but my god that theme is so associated with the death of willow that it really troubles me when i hear that waltz theme underneath receiving your Christmas present, I'm thinking, oh my God, this girl's going to die sooner or later at the hands of somebody. You know? So it's, it's very complicated, I think. But, uh, but the weaving of the themes really helps to keep the, the film unified. Uh, whose idea was it to give Preacher the kind of, uh, the tune that he whistles, the leaning on the everlasting arms, which is like a real M sort of callback? Yes, yes, it is, very much. And so. then yeah. it gets played with, with at the very end with Lillian Gish, and they do a duet or counterpoint melody. Right. Um, 
that in the book or? It is in the book. It's absolutely okay. in the book. Leaning on the Everlasting Arms is in the book. And uh, it was in a short story that Davis Grubb wrote um, about Achilles. It's the story that he decided to expand into a novel. He wrote a film, of, uh, I think, uh, a story called Gentleman Friend. And it was about a guy who answers Lonely Hearts columns and, and kills a widow. And he sings a little tune. We never hear what the tune is in the short story. But he whistles a jaunting little tune. And, like, and so this guy becomes known as the Mockingbird Killer because people would hear this whistling tune before they discover the corpse, you know. So uh, the Mockingbird Killer, the idea of music with the killer, is in the short story, Gentleman Friend friend, which then Grubb expanded into a novel. Um, and you can see a handwritten note at the end on the back of one of his pages where he said, maybe, maybe make, um, the, it's just the one boy in the short story. He said, maybe make it a boy and his sister and maybe make this guy a preacher. Ponder this. You know? <laughs> he pondered it very well and created these two kids that are attacked uh, being a by preacher and turned uh, the guy into this, this preacher character. And then he thought to give him the hint him leaning on the everlasting arms. And that's all through the book and then they use it brilliantly. Um, Schumann and Lawton talked about though, maybe using leaning on the everlasting arms as underscoring all through the film. Mm-hmm. And then Schumann decided, no, we can't do that. That will somehow um, give this man too much um, too much likability somehow, or it'll soften him somehow. If he's, if he's related to leaning on the everlasting arms, it's the wrong thing to do. So he created his own dark theme for uh, preacher, but then let leaning on the everlasting arms just be the theme that he sings from time to time. And over the course of the film, it becomes the sound of terror. You know, it's by the time he sings it out in the remember this wonderful scene where John is in the hayloft and he looks out, he thinks he's safe and free, and been, the moon is and the birds are twittering, and he looks out and he hears leaning, leaning, and preacher goes across the horizon. You know, that song right there is just the sound of horror and terror. He says, "Don't never sleep." Um, so uh, it's it's a sound of of cruelty. And but when Lillian Gish sings it with him in that moment you mentioned, uh, she sings uh, Jesus. You know, he's singing leaning. Leaning, and she's singing, leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus. <laughs> it was Paul Gregory who told Lawton, you know, when I was a kid in Iowa in the Baptist church, I remember that the congregation would split into two parts, and one side would sing leaning, one song would sing leaning on Jesus. He said, when well, we have uh, Gish do that, so that's how they did it. And in fact, I have a hymnal from the 1930s, and it's laid out exactly that way. You know, the two parts of the congregation are supposed to sing separate, separate parts there. But it's absolutely brilliant to hear Lillian Gish singing Jesus, a word that Mitchum Preacher never uses, you know. <laughs> That's one of the great scenes of the film, isn't it? That duet that they have. Yeah. Um, before we kind of wrap up, did anybody else have any other questions for Jeff? Yeah, I had I had one. Um, Jeff, what kind of influence do you think this this kind of initial flop of a film, but now it's had kind of a resurgence? What kind of influence do you think it's had just kind of um, maybe on American film history and maybe American culture altogether? I, I have... Um, I, don't, I can only find like two things that, that come to mind. Uh, obviously, Radio Raheem in um, Spike Lee's yeah. Do the Right Thing has has the right hand, left hand. And then recently, just this year, a stop motion music video for this song called Moonwrapped is is a shot for shot remake of the, the riverboat sequence. And I was wondering if, if you have any other influences or or kind of, um, you know, 
homages. Yeah, well, the, the, the fingers love tattooed on one hand and hate tattooed on the other, which is in the novel. That's all part of the novel, too. I mean, the book is deeply faithful to the novel. Anything that's in the film is pretty much in the book. You can count on that. Those fingers have become sort of uh, part of the culture. Uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, even Meatloaf comes through, and he has uh, uh, tattoos on his fingers, you know? <laughs> that's a tribute okay. to people will say um, uh, that the, that was created in Rocky Horror. It's a tribute to Night of the Hunter. You know? <laughs> and in, um, I mentioned also in my book, uh, The Simpsons, when um, what's his name uh, is after Sp- um, SpongeBob? What? Not SpongeBob. <laughs> oh, uh, Sideshow Bob. Sideshow Bob. <laughs> <I said SpongeBob. laughs> Wrong. Same thing. Um, but although they, I could imagine them doing this in SpongeBob too, come to think of it. But Sideshow Bob is after uh, Bart, and he's got just three fingers. So his his tattoos say L U V and H A T with a long vowel sound sign over the A. Is that brilliant? Okay. <laughs> so he's got love and hate. So um, the the imagery of Preacher's fingers are sort of embedded into our culture. I think it's just part of uh, part of the the, the, the scene of our, of our of a certain part of, of my life. Um, the film it's so unusual that I, I can't really think of it though as as sort of influencing other films. It came. It was its own thing at the time, and it remains its own thing now. You know. I mean, um, certainly. Um, there, I mentioned some songs um, that sort of echo the, the preacher's fingers too. Um, Bruce Springsteen has a song, and, and uh, Clash even have a song that sort of has the talk about tattooed fingers. So, so I think in various ways, um, details from the film get get, get brought in. But um, and that scene in "Do the Right Thing" is absolutely brilliant—a a street lingo version of the uh, love-hate theme. It's just brilliant. It's wonderful, you know. Um, but I don't think the film—I wouldn't think the film is having a huge influence on other filmmakers really because it's just nobody can do what it did it's it's unique you know there's truly is nothing like it in american cinema (laughs) and a lot of it has to do with stanley cortez that brilliant cinematography i mean it's so wonderful i think you know when i showed it to um my my took my daughter and her friend to see the film um on on the big screen at the film forum here in manhattan and the kids just loved it they loved the story but both of them said it's so beautiful i mean these kids wrapped up in black and white cinematography you know (laughs) it's wonderful that these 15 year old they're actually then they were 12 i think um were struck by the cinematography because it's so beautiful it's so wonderful so i suppose you know people who want to shape and shade uh, shadowy scenes within certain films might be might have night of the hunter in mind but it's uh, it's it hasn't had the kind of influences that say you know french films from the past or italian films have had because it's just so much um the night of the hunter yeah that's my feeling anyhow anything else all right. Uh, well, Lydia, did you have something? Uh, I was just thinking about how it's funny. Last week we were talking about James, and he was the only defender of Charlie Chaplin's "quote unquote" Bluebeard story, and then he writes a Bluebeard story a few <laughs> years later. Yes. That's so. great. That's great. Well, the 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 ironies in Monsieur Verdu and the ironies in Night of the Hunter are exactly what appealed deeply to aging. You know, mm-hmm. the idea of of showing the hypocrisy of religion. Yeah, uh, that, that's something he was interested in, and um, yeah, yeah. So it was uh, <laughs> the dark connections. Edge. Yes, yes, absolutely. Dark edge in Agee's film and the darkness of Night of the Hunter. He responded uh, to that very well too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Jeff, thank you so much for, for chatting with us. I thought this was great. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This was really fun, and I, I'm, I'm glad to be here, and I love your uh, website. So um, I look forward to, to listening to more of your podcasts. So. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. 
And I believe that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash Cinematary, uh, at Twitter at handle at t- Cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash Cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Uh, next week, we'll be continuing our Young Critics series with 1953's Ugetsu. Uh, but I would recommend also checking out Cinematary.com. We have some new writing. Um, Andrew wrote about 2009's Orphan. Uh, John here wrote about 2006 Cars. And we just got uh, Jessica Carr's review of Okja, which we talked about a little bit last week, but she has a much longer uh, review on that film on the website now. But yeah, thank you guys for listening.